Well, thank you, worship team. Thank you to uh, Bill and Margie for the wonderful testimony, for our missionaries who have given reports. Uh, Just wonderful to uh, consider what God is doing in the world today, uh, even during a time such as this, right? A time such as this. That's the the theme for our missions conference this year, and you might think, well, what do you mean by that, a time such as this? Well, think about where we were this time last year. Anybody remember? (laughs) Missions conference last year was our our last big hurrah before the coronavirus hit, and we closed the church building down, and we moved our services exclusively online. I remember uh, the week before missions conference, you know, things were in the news. It all happened very quickly, and I remember I, I, I poked my head into to Pastor Clint's office. I said, Pastor Clint, do you think we need to, uh, to postpone the missions conference or with this uh, the coronavirus coming? And I don't think it's going to come to that, to, 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 to closing our, 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 our church down. Well, we had our missions conference, had a wonderful time together, uh, the time of fellowship and potluck in the gym, and then the next Monday, the city was shut down. We closed our businesses, we all started working from home, and uh, kids started homeschooling, and we've been in various forms and phases of that, that lockdown or the gradual reopening ever since. I mean, look at our, our sanctuary. We've still got the, the every other pew roped off to ensure the, the social distance. Some of us have finally begun receiving the vaccine a year later. This, this last year has been a year unlike any other. And I know we don't need to dwell on that. We don't need to belabor that. We've kind of uh, driven that home. But one aspect we have not considered a lot as a, a corporate body, at least as a church, is how has this impacted the mission of God? How has this impacted our own ability to, uh, to, 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 Proclaim the gospel around the world. How has this influenced our missionaries? What is God doing in and through this time of crisis? And maybe not just the the coronavirus crisis, but there have been many crises over the last year. And as we read the news, it just seems like the crises are getting worse and worse and worse. And we wonder, what is God doing in times such as this. And so as a missions committee, as we considered uh, how we want to approach missions conference this year and and how it would look differently and what should our angle be on the conference, we settled on this theme. comes from Esther chapter 4, verse 14. For a time such as this. These were the words that Mordecai uttered to his, his cousin Esther, who was in the role of queen of the Persian Empire. Now, how does a a young Jewish lady end up as queen of Persia? Well, that's, that's a different story. We don't need to dwell on that this morning. What we're zeroing in on here are his words, Mordecai's words to Esther, for a time such as this. He was exhorting her, saying... Yes, these are difficult times that we as a Jewish people live in, but maybe God has orchestrated you in this role as queen to work out the salvation of his people. For a time such as this, you have come to the throne. For a time such as this. You see, the Jewish people were not in their homeland. The Jewish people, when Mordecai uttered these words to Esther for a time such as this, had been scattered throughout the known world. It's a phenomenon that we call the the Jewish diaspora. The Jewish diaspora. This word diaspora, is, it comes from a Greek, uh, Greek word, and you may have heard it. It's become a common, a common 
word in our language today even, because we use this word diaspora to describe the, uh, the, 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 the dispersion of peoples. Diaspora refers to a scattering or a dispersion. It's used in a technical sense to, to talk about the displacement of a group of people. And it, it has its roots in this Jewish experience of being scattered, taken out of their homeland, the country of Israel, and being scattered throughout the empire. That was the original sense of the word diaspora. And now today we, we speak of many different people groups and their diaspora as God moves different peoples over the face of the earth. It's a common word, but we're focusing on the Jewish diaspora. This is something, we're going to do a little historical review here, the historical fact of the Jewish diaspora. The Jewish diaspora began in 722 B.C., The story goes like this, the history, the the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the mighty Assyrian Empire. They ravaged the face of the globe, and here you have a picture of the the extent of the Assyrian Empire at at its greatest influence. And the northern kingdom of Israel, the northern ten tribes, were carried off into captivity and resettled throughout the Assyrian Empire. One interesting fact about this empire is that God miraculously protected the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, from the Assyrian invasion. You notice on the map behind me that there's a little red pocket of the people of Judah and their kingdom retained its political independence. The son of David remained on the throne. He was not Captive, God, God miraculously protected the kingdom of Judah, even as the Assyrians uh, cap- captured and repopulated all the people around them. God retained his people there in Judah. Sadly, that independence was short lived. A few hundred years later, in 586 BC, the kingdom of Judah fell to the Babylonians. The Babylonians were the next great superpower. And during this time period, the Babylonians overpowered the Assyrians, conquered all of their territory, and the Babylonians succeeded where the Assyrians had failed. And they even destroyed Jerusalem and carried the people of Jerusalem into captivity. And that was the the phenomenon that we call the the Jewish exile, which led to this diaspora, this scattering of the Jewish people throughout the known world. Well, as the, the course of history goes, the Babylonian Empire fell to the Persians, and here you have a map of the extent of the Persian Empire a few, uh, a few years later, 522 B.C., Uh, Less than 70 years later, the Persians conquered the known world, defeated the Greeks. The book of Daniel gives us the account of of that from the Jewish perspective, in fact, uh, where the Medes and the Persians defeated the, the mighty Babylonians, and the Persians conquered the known world. And that's the era that Queen Esther came to the throne in during this Persian Empire. During the Persian period, King Cyrus did allow some of the Jewish people to return and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. So there was a small return of the Jewish people, but not all of them were able to return. Many of them had eked out lives and and, and built homes, and they remained scattered throughout the Persian Empire. And the, the people that did return did not regain their political independence. They got to rebuild their city. But the son of David did not retake the throne. There was no new Davidic king in Jerusalem. They were still subjects of the mighty Persian Empire. Until that is, until the days of Alexander the Great and the Greek Empire. So the Assyrians conquered the world. The Babylonians conquered the Assyrians. The Persians conquered the Babylonians. Then the Greeks conquered the Persians. And the Greeks reigned the known world for the next few hundred years, only to be followed by the mighty Roman Empire. And that is what the world looked like when Jesus came on the throne, uh, came to the world, did not take the throne, but the son of David did come to Bethlehem 
during that mighty Roman Empire. And it was the Jewish hope that, oh, the Messiah is going to come and finally be the one to deliver us from this diaspora phenomenon we're experiencing. Reestablish the reign of God in Jerusalem. Regain our, our political independence from Rome. Well, as we know, God had different plans. And the kingdom of God started out much differently than the Jewish people were expecting with the crucifixion of Jesus and his ascension into heaven. The Roman Empire lasted uh, for many years. Uh, the, the, The western half of the empire fell, but the eastern half of the empire continued under the the Byzantine rule, it's called, from Constantinople. And that that lasted until the 1500s when the Ottomans took over the the empire. The Ottoman Turks, so an Islamic uh, background, conquered the, the remnants of the Roman Empire. And the Jewish region continued under foreign rule. You realize that ever since the Jewish nation fell to the Babylonians in in 586 BC, they had been under foreign rule. All up through the Ottoman Empire, and the Ottoman Empire uh, began in the 1500s, and that empire lasted until the end of World War I. And with the end of World War I, and then uh, shortly after, we experienced World War II, and it was then after World War II that the modern state of Israel was reestablished, and the Jewish people regained some of their political independence in the modern state of Israel. But my point is this, this phenomenon, this Jewish diaspora is one that characterized the people of God for the better part of the, 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 the last 2,500 years of world history. This phenomenon of being taken out of their homeland and scattered and subject to the oppressive fist of foreign rulers. This phenomenon of diaspora. Now, we've taken a very dry historical look at it. That's what the historians will tell you right there. The, 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 uh, you take a history class, uh, Western civilization or anything like that, and that's, that's the story you get. I mean, it makes sense politically. Yeah, this kingdom was more powerful, so they fell, and then more powerful, and, you know, just the ebb and flow of world history, right? Well, as the people of God, the people of the book, we have a slightly different perspective on these things. You see, the... the the phenomenon of the Jewish diaspora presents a, 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 a theological problem for us as the people of God. The theological problem that the, the people faced was this. The, peop, the nation of Israel had been established for one purpose. And we reviewed that a couple months ago. You remember back in January, we looked at this um, at this purpose of God calling Abraham out. And what was it that God said to Abraham? God said, I'm going to bless you, but I am going to bless you in order that you may be a blessing. You remember that? God's mission for this nation of Israel that came from Abraham was to be his his channel of blessing to the whole world. The world had come under a curse And from the days of Adam, it had been curse after curse after curse upon the world, brought about because of human sin and simply the way we treated each other and treated God. And God came to Abram and said, I'm going to offer a solution to this curse, and I'm going to do it through you and your family and through the nation that will come from you. God's mission for the Jewish people was to bless the world through Israel. So what is the problem that is presented by this phenomenon of diaspora? The fact that their kingdom fell, their city was destroyed, and their king was taken away into captivity. What is the problem? The problem was this. What happens to the mission of God as a result of this Jewish diaspora? If the the people of God have been carried away into captivity, what does that mean in relation to the mission of God? 
two answers that the world might come come at this question with are these. First of all, uh, a popular answer in the world today, uh, in the world back then, they, they might simply look at the situation and say, huh, okay, maybe Babylon's gods are just more powerful than Yahweh. Yeah, Israel worshipped this guy Yahweh, but Babylon worshipped this this, this pantheon of gods here on the screen, you, you have a depiction of the, the Babylonian god Marduk fighting against Tiamat, the chaos monster, as we, as we have from Babylonian mythology. Uh, maybe that's what happened. Maybe, maybe Yahweh just wasn't as strong as Marduk. That's, that's the, the, the way people would explain the ebb and flow of world history back then in that worldview. I mean, each nation had its gods, or God, in the case of the Israelites, they worshipped one God, and each nation's gods were responsible to protect that territory. And when nations fought against each other, it was really the gods were fighting against each other too. That was the way people looked at the world back then. So you can imagine what an Israelite person must feel like when this superpower is able to overcome and destroy and carry them away into captivity. It makes you start questioning, yeah, Yahweh promised that, but I guess this guy Marduk, maybe he was just more powerful. The nations of the world might look around and say, yep, yep, those Babylonians, they got some powerful gods, right? So that's the ancient way of, one ancient way of interpreting this, this theological problem. It's simply, simply the, the gods fighting and one god was more powerful than the other. A different way we might look at this today is this, more of a, a contemporary popular explanation of the the Jewish captivity, it might be simply that God was moving on to plan B. Okay, so if we look at the Israelite people, uh, we might imagine that Israel has failed in her, her responsibility to act as this channel of blessing to the nations, right? That was God's plan through Abraham. I'm going to establish Israel, and you're going to be my people, and the nations are going to come to know me through you. But Israel failed. They did not carry, uphold the law that God gave them. They did not model God's righteousness and justice to the world. And so God set Israel aside and moved on to plan B and started the church to take care of the job that Israel failed to do of representing him to the world. That's a popular way at look, of looking at that today, even in churches today. There are, there are, uh, it's a popular interpretation. But that's not correct either. The church is not God's plan B. God's plan A has not failed. So, we can easily say, okay, the first explanation, uh, polytheism, Babylon's gods were not more powerful than Israel's gods. Uh, We can say, I've, I've said that God has not moved on to plan B. Well, what is the biblical answer? We're going to spend a little bit of time here looking at the Bible's answer to why this happened. And we find uh, uh, the the, the most concise answer in the Bible as far as why this this exile and diaspora occurred in the book of 2 Kings. Turn to 2 Kings chapter 17. And we're going to, uh, we're going to, I've put the most important verses here on the screen for you. But if you turn in your Bible, this is an important passage explaining the, the, the theological perspective on what has happened. This is the prophets of Israel reflecting on these events and explaining them in theological terms. They begin in verse 6 with the simple historical fact. In the ninth year of Hosea, king of, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah, and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. That's the historical fact that I just reviewed for you. The Assyrians carried the northern ten tribes off into exile. Why did it happen? Well, look at verse 7. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. They had sinned against Yahweh who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, 
and had feared other gods. Skipping down to verse 13. Yet the Lord had warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. But they would not listen. They were stubborn as their fathers had been who did not believe in Yahweh their God. They despised his statutes and his covenants that he made with them. They went after false idols. They followed the nations that were around them concerning whom Yahweh had commanded them that they should not do like them. And so, at the end of verse 18, skipping down to verse 18, Therefore, Yahweh was very angry with Israel and removed them out of his sight. That's the theological perspective. So the prophets explained to us here in 2 Kings, this was not a matter of the Babylonian deity overpowering Yahweh and capturing Yahweh's people. What is the theological explanation? Yahweh has cast his own people out of his land because they have polluted it with their idolatry. They've gone astray from their intended goal. They've failed to to, to live up to this divine vocation as a nation of priests that's going to draw the world back to God. And so God has cast them out. That answers the first question. Were the Babylonians more powerful? (laughs) No, no. God was using the Babylonians as a tool to accomplish the discipline of his people, according to 2 Kings 17. Okay, so if God, if if it wasn't that the Babylonians were more powerful, clearly we see here, no, God is using them. Well, what about that plan B thing? This doesn't doesn't say that, that, that God has not moved on to plan B. Maybe that's exactly what we see here. Well, to explain, explain that, we have to go back to the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy explains, it, it, the, the book of Deuteronomy is like the constitution of the land of Israel, okay? The people of Israel were camped on the plains of Moab across from Jericho, and they were ready to go into the land that God had promised to give them. He's God's promised, you're going to be my nation. I'm going to use you to bless the whole world and I'm going to settle you in this land and this will be my channel of blessing to the nations. So they were right on the cusp of taking their inheritance of this promised land and Moses was giving them their constitution. It's called the Torah, the law of Moses, the laws that would govern their use of this land. And what did Moses tell them on the eve of their conquest of the promised land, way back in the book of Deuteronomy. This is important because it reveals that the church is not God's plan B. Plan A did not fail. Right as plan A was was coming together, as the people were going into the land, what did Moses say? Well, in Deuteronomy 28, Moses is warning the people about what will happen if and when they fail to uphold God's law, the the constitution of the land. What did Moses predict was going to happen? Deuteronomy 28.64, Moses says, The Lord will scatter you among all peoples, from one end of the earth to the other. Moses knew this would happen before they even conquered the land. And it was written in the word of God, you are going to fail to keep God's law and God will scatter you. There you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations, you shall find no respite and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. Doesn't that explain the, describe the, the, the Jewish experience for the last 2,500 years practically, persecution after persecution, even the Holocaust, 
the, the tragedies that have befallen the Jewish people were predicted by Moses before they even set foot in their promised land. This is not plan B that we're in now. We're still in plan A, and this prophecy of Moses, this prediction of Moses here, confirms that all along God knew the path that this was going to take. And even this terrible thing, the Jewish diaspora, the the exile, and all of the tragedies that have befallen people since, play into this eternal plan of God to reconcile the nations. God knew it was coming. It was part of his plan for the very beginning. So, if it's not plan B that God just cast Israel aside and moved to plan B, if it's not some uh, eternal cosmic warfare between deities, what is it? Why did God use this terrible experience of suffering and persecution and scattering and diaspora in the lives of his people? To answer this, we're going to look at God's purposes in the Jewish diaspora as they're revealed in the book of Ezekiel. God's purposes, or rather God's mission in the Jewish diaspora. Going back to that question, what do the times of crisis have to do with God's mission? We'll see through the book of Ezekiel that God had three very specific purposes that he's accomplishing. Three ways that his mission to bless the world through the seed of Abraham are being carried forward even during their national tragedy. God's mission in the Jewish diaspora. Turn to the book of Ezekiel with me, if you would. Ezekiel was one of the two prophets who spoke to the Israelites during this terrible time of the Babylonian invasion. The other was the prophet Jeremiah. And Brother Solomon Kendegore is going to share with us from the prophet Jeremiah next week. Jeremiah ministered in the nation of Judah. He was part of the remnant that was left behind after the initial Babylonian invasion. And the Babylonians captured a good number of people and took them with them back to Babylon, right? And among those people, you know, the popular guy was Daniel, right? But there was another prophet who went as well. And he did not serve in the courts of the king. He lived in a refugee camp in the outskirts of Babylon. And that was the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel wrote from this refugee camp on the outskirts of Babylon, having been removed from his land, and his job as God's prophet was to help his people who were in captivity with him process what has happened and how does this all fit into God's eternal plan. And Ezekiel, though his message was in some ways very discouraging, you see the people were hoping they would get to go home very soon and and Ezekiel, Ezekiel says, no, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed pretty soon. We're, we're the, the lucky ones because we get to keep living here in Babylon. There's not much hope for the people that are left behind. It was not a very popular message. But embedded within this, this discouraging message is a message of hope because Ezekiel reminds us that God is continuing to work through these terrible experiences. And the first thing we see that God is doing through this experience of being carried away into captivity, being persecuted and experiencing such terrible, terrible violence is this. God is purging his people from idolatry. God is using this pagan nation to purge the idolatrous practices from his people Israel. Look at Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 38 and 39 are on the screen behind us. In Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 38, God speaks to this this community of refugees settled in Babylon through Ezekiel and explains what he's doing. He says, I will purge out the rebels from among you 
And those who transgress against me, I will bring them out of the land where they sojourn, but they shall not enter the land of Israel. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. This phrase comes again and again through the book of Ezekiel. You will know that I am Yahweh. You will know that I am Yahweh when you see me do these things. And the first thing he promises here is that when I do this, it will purge the idolatry and you will know that I am Yahweh. I am the one true God. And these idols that have distracted you from my mission will be set aside. As for you, O house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, go serve you every one of his idols. If that's what you want to do, go do it, God says. But now and hereafter, if you will not listen to me, but my holy name you shall no more profane with your gifts and your idols. God promises that through this experience of the invasion of Babylon and being carried away into captivity, he will purge the Jewish people of idolatry. Do you realize that idolatry is kind of the big thing throughout most of the Old Testament Bible stories that we're familiar with, isn't it? I mean, it's, it, it's, a, it's a constant theme throughout the Old Testament. The, the people worshipped idols, whether it was the, the golden calf that they bowed down to during the Exodus, or whether it was uh, the, uh, the god Baal that Queen Jezebel introduced during the days of Ahab, or Dagon of the Philistines. It was all this constant issue of God's people being distracted by the idols that the nations around them offered. That was the dominant theme throughout the Old Testament. But where are the idols in the New Testament? You ever realize that? What made the Jewish people stop worshiping idols when you get to the time of Jesus? They're, they're no longer distracted by the idols. There's just as many idols in the world in, in New Testament times, for sure. I mean, look at all the Greek gods like Zeus and Hermes and, and, and Hercules and the Greek pantheon and the Roman pantheon like Mars and Judo, Juno and, 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 and Jupiter and we've named the planets after them. I mean, the, the Greek and Roman gods were, were alive and well, so to speak. No, they weren't alive and well, but they were in the world, but the Jewish people were no longer distracted by them. Why? Because God has used this terrible national tragedy to get his people's attention once and for all. Idolatry is no longer an issue even in Jewish communities today. I mean, go into any synagogue and they are fervent monotheists. They, they revere and they worship and they trust in the one true God, Yahweh. What was it that changed them from this, this, this nation that was constantly being distracted by idols to, to worshiping Yahweh so fervently? It was this experience of exile and captivity. God used this in his plan. How are these people, this nation, going to produce my Messiah for the world if they're constantly just going in the ways of the world? This was part of God's plan to accomplish the salvation of the nations. He can't save the nations through Israel if Israel is acting just like all the other nations, can he? God is using this experience to galvanize them in their worship and recognition of him and his sovereignty. God used this to teach them who he was and to get them away from this distraction of idolatry once and for all. So that's the first point. God used this tragedy to purge his people of idolatry. Second point is this. God used this, this experience to reveal his character, to show the world who he really is. And there's two angles on this. First of all, God's character is revealed through judgment. Take a look at Ezekiel 21, verse 5, the very next chapter. Just flip the page over. Um, and what does God say? Here in Ezekiel chapter 21, 5, God is talking about what's going to happen to the city of Jerusalem. 
Remember I said Ezekiel's in this refugee camp and he's talking about the city of Jerusalem, which at this time still stood. 21, starting in verse 1, God says, The word of Yahweh came to me, Ezekiel speaking, Son of man, set your face toward Jerusalem and preach against the sanctuaries. Prophesy against the land of Israel and say to the land of Israel, Thus says Yahweh, Behold, I am against you and will draw my sword from its sheath and will cut off from you both righteous and wicked. city of Jerusalem will be destroyed. And why is he going to do this? Skip down to verse 5. All flesh shall know that I am Yahweh. There's that phrase again. Doing this so that all flesh shall know that I am Yahweh. I have drawn my sword from its sheath. It shall not be sheathed again. God reveals his character through judgment. How is that? Well, it proves that he is not going to allow his name to be profaned. He's not going to allow his people to continue to make a mockery of himself and the promises that he's made to them. God will intervene and God will deal with the sin and transgression of his people. You see, God's reputation was at stake here. The nations of the world know that the the Hebrew people claim to be the people of Yahweh. And the nations of the world watch the behavior, the injustice, the terrible ways they're treating themselves, even their own children offering them as, as human sacrifices. And God says, hey, you're my representatives. You're not going to profane my name like this anymore. The world's going to know what I'm really like. So he uses judgment to accomplish this, to reveal his character. But God does not only reveal his character through judgment. There's another aspect of this. If you skip ahead in the book of Ezekiel to chapter 37. Ezekiel 37, Ezekiel talks about the wonderful future. You see, you see Ezekiel promises that this, this exile, this diaspora, this captivity would not last forever. And Ezekiel 37, this is the famous vision of the valley of dry bones. When God says, you see these dry bones, Ezekiel This is what it's like for my people. They're like skeletons laying on the desert. But I'm going to breathe new life into them. I'm going to bring them back to life. I'm going to resurrect them. And what does Ezekiel promise as a result of this resurrection in Ezekiel 37? uh, Verse 24, he begins explaining this. He says, my servant David shall be king over them. The son of David will come to the throne once more. In the future, they shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. So God's promising he's going to bring his people back after this experience. He's going to resettle them in the land. He's going to give them political independence again. The son of David will take the throne once more, he promises. Verse 26, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be with their God, and they shall know my pe- be my people. And what will happen? The nations will know that I am Yahweh, who sanctifies Israel, when my sanctuary is in their midst forevermore. So the nations see God judge Israel, yes. God stand up for the sanctity of his name. Yes, they watch that and know, they affirm who who Yahweh really is. But the bigger deal is when God, God brings his people back into their land and resettles them and proves his faithfulness to his people. The nations will watch that and affirm who Yahweh is. So God uses this terrible tragedy to purge them from idolatry, to reveal his character. And then lastly, he uses this national tragedy to bring the nations back into relationship with himself. So far, everything Ezekiel has said is that the nations will know about me. They will know about me. They'll know who Yahweh is when they see me working With Israel, my people, in this way, the nations will know who I am. 
But there's a difference between knowing who someone is and knowing them personally, isn't there? Does Ezekiel ever say that the nations will actually come into relationship with Yahweh? He does. In Ezekiel chapter 38. Ezekiel chapter 38 is an interesting chapter. It's not actually talking about historical events. It's talking about one more great persecution that will arise against the Jewish people in the future. In the end times, there will be this this, uh, mighty mighty king Gog of a nation called Magog that comes against the people once more and that leaves a coalition of nations against God's people. And God says, I will use this insurrection against my people to accomplish my purposes. What does he say? Ezekiel 38, 16. You will come against my people Israel like a cloud covering the land. Imagine this mighty pagan army coming against the people of God. In the latter days, I will bring you against my land. Why? That the nations may know me. That the nations may know me. When through you, O Gog, I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. God uses these experiences, the persecution, the suffering of his people to draw the nations into relationship with himself. The story that Ezekiel tells here is that the nations will recognize Yahweh standing up for his people and come to know Yahweh themselves. That's a God who watches out for his people. That's a God I want to serve. That's a God I want to know. God uses these experiences in the lives of his people to accomplish his good purposes. This is the same thing that Paul's talking about in the book of Romans. If you look at Romans chapter 11, what does Paul say about this terrible tragedy that's befallen his people? Romans 11, 1, Paul starts, he says, Has God rejected his people, Israel? Has God rejected his people? We're in diaspora still, Paul's reflecting. He answers the question, by no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. Then skip down to verse 11, Paul says, so I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? God just pushing his people in the dirt? No, no, God's got a plan. By no means, rather, through their trespass, through their mistake, Salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Paul is holding out hope for the future salvation of his people, for the fulfillment of God's promises through Israel. And Paul is saying that through these tragedies that came upon his people Israel, God is opening up the channel of blessing to the whole world. It's through these experiences that the world comes to know and experience the love of God and come to salvation. Going all the way back to that promise God made to Abraham. In you shall all the nations of the world be blessed. So what's the answer to that question? How do these problems, these trials, these times of crisis play into the eternal plan of God? Well, we see here that the mission of God is not suspended during times of crisis. God uses times of crisis just like we're experiencing today, just like the people of Israel have been experiencing since the days of Assyria and Babylon. God uses these experiences to accomplish his mission, to bring the nations to himself. Three ways I want to talk about that in our life today. What does that mean for us today? First of all, God uses suffering to remove the dead wood from the pews, doesn't he? God uses suffering to remove the dead wood from the pews. It's like pruning a tree. 
Jesus gives the illustration in in John chapter 15. He says, My father is the, the true vine dresser, and any branch that does not bear fruit, he's going to cut it off. God uses suffering to prune his people like a tree, to remove those who are not bearing fruit so that we can be more effective in the mission. Just like the Israelites, the idolaters were purged. What is God doing in the American church today through this coronavirus epidemic? I mean, we, we mourn, the, uh, we mourn the, the fact that church attendance is dwindling. What is God doing? Will the church ever recover from this? The church will be fine. God is using this. The church will emerge from this leaner and meaner and more focused than ever on the mission of God. I'm not talking about those of us who are not in the building physically on, uh, today, but we're watching online. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean, that's an important decision that we appreciate uh, many of us making in this past years because we can't even, for a long time, we couldn't even accommodate all of, all of our people in our building under the, the restrictions. So that's good. We appreciate the fact that we can participate online. But I'm not talking about those who are online but not in the pews. No, I'm not saying that. I'm talking about the broader church as a whole. How is God going to use this to prune the American church to be more prepared than ever to engage his mission? Are you prepared to step up and take a greater role in the mission of God? He's making more opportunities for us through this to focus on what really needs to get done. We're going to have a responsibility as a church to our missionaries. We've got to continue to support them financially as they start seeing other churches drop them as their numbers dwindle. We're going to have to step up and deliver and keep our missionaries on the field. So God uses this to prune out the dead wood from the pews and to get us more focused on his mission. Second, God uses trials to increase his people's reliance on him. We heard this in the videos this morning, didn't we? Irene McAtee saying, God has drawn me closer into a deeper relationship with him through this time of isolation and loneliness. God uses this to draw us closer to him, just like he did with the Israelites. The Bolivian report, what has God done throughout Bolivia? We haven't been able to go down there and visit and encourage them and and work alongside them like they're used to, but God is blessing their ministry completely in and of itself. Look at what our mission fields are accomplishing. Look at what Daryl and Becky Martin report from the Philippines. We'll hear from them next week. The missions carrying on by the indigenous workers themselves getting the task done. So how has your own reliance on God deepened in the past year? How will this trial impact your involvement in God's mission? In a little bit, a lot of us are going to get a whole lot of money that a lot of us don't need. Now, some of us really need this money that's coming. And, and if that's the case, for sure, you've got to take care of your family. You, you, this is God's way of providing for you to continue living and sustaining his mission as a family. But some of us, this stimulus package is kind of a little extra bonus on top. Is that something you can take and invest into the mission of God somehow? Whether it's through the Faith Promise Fund here at Hope Church, you can donate to the mission. Whether it's to a missionary that you personally know that is experiencing a drop in support, you can send it straight to them. Or maybe there's a a cause that you want to donate to. Hey, God is using this and he has blessed some of us above and beyond what we need this year in this time of trial. Or maybe there's somebody in your neighborhood that you know is having a hard time and you need to use that as a way to reach out and represent the love of God to him. But God has proved to us in this last year that we can trust him to take care of us during this time. Lastly, God uses the forces of diaspora to draw the nations to himself. God uses these forces to bring the nations 
where he wants to be, to bring them to exposure to his word. He sent the Jewish people out with their Torah throughout the Babylonian Empire. And he continues to use displacement, famine, war, disease to move people across the face of the earth to come in contact with his word. We've got missionaries working with diaspora peoples today. Jack and Junia Thompson, right here in St. Louis with all nations, working with people, unreached Muslim people that God has brought to the city of St. Louis. We don't even have to go overseas anymore. God is bringing the nations to our doorstep. Solomon and Ruby Kindergar from ISI will talk about the international student diaspora and how God brings students from throughout the world to study in our universities here in St. Louis, and we have an opportunity to share the gospel with them. Bruce and Irene McAtee ministering to refugees in Greece. God uses these tragedies to bring people to places where they can experience his love and forgiveness. Pattonville and Rittner High School are the two most diverse schools in St. Louis, right here in our own sphere of influence at Hope Church. God has placed us in a strategic location. The two most diverse in the St. Louis region, and they're in the top 10 for all of, all of Missouri. God has placed us strategically. How are we going to reach the nations that God is bringing to our doorsteps? The Jewish diaspora demonstrates that the times of crisis do not derail the mission of God. He's active. He's working through the circumstances of the world to bring about the reconciliation of all creation. The challenge is this. What is your role during this time of crisis? How is God tugging at your heart to get involved in this mission. In each of your mail folders out here, there's a faith promise card that you can pull out. Bill and Margie shared about that. Normally, we'd have an altar call here, and we not an altar call, but we'd, 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 we'd play the music and pass the basket to collect your faith promise of how you're going to support the, uh, the, the mission budget this, this year. We use these pro- funds to tell each of our missionaries how, how can we support you this year financially? Can we continue to stand behind you as you proclaim the, the gospel? We use these funds to mobilize our youth and get them excited about the, 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 the work of the world, God in the world today, and to send our own people overseas. So that's one, one practical aspect. You can take the Faith Promise card out of your mail folder, take it home this week, Bring it back next week and have it ready to put in that offering box out in front of the office. Or you can go online. You can make a a recurring faith promise donation to the mission budget. This is how we as a church corporately engage the mission of God today. But it doesn't stop with giving financially. Maybe God's tugging at your heart to step out, to get involved, to take a short-term trip. To, to find a refugee community right here in St. Louis that we as a church can mobilize to serve, or something like that. But God uses these national trials and tragedies to offer, to mobilize his people to offer his message of hope, peace, and justice. So that's my challenge to you this morning. Spend some time this week meditating on the plan of God and how it impacts your life and your role in that mission today. Come back next week. We're excited to hear from Brother Solomon Kendegor as he continues on this theme of missions in times of crisis. Thank you.